Welcome to Literally Two Cents About Content, a podcast about what it's like to write for as little as two cents per word. I'm Alex. And I'm Elizabeth. Clocks didn't used to be standardized until a hundred and some odd years ago. You'd go to different cities and the time would literally, even though the cities weren't that far away from each other, the it might be like 7.05 in one place and at the same exact moment it was like 7.15 or something. <laughs> yeah, so that was a recent innovation, but nobody really talks about that anymore, I guess, because going back to the old system would be uh, would be pretty bad, I think. Yeah. It's, I don't know, try, uh, wishing you had a manual transmission car. Is, why would anybody want to go back to that? Some people do. I one time I accidentally did put my car into manual. There's some kind of setting where if you hold the stick a certain way for X number of seconds, it switches to manual. And it was the weirdest thing ever. Like the engine was so loud. It was, I was doing like 6,000 RPMs per second. I was like, what? what is going on? And it's like, oh, man. And then I, even though I was doing that, I wasn't, I was going like 25 miles an hour. So it wasn't yeah. like I was just tearing through the road or something. But yeah, it's a good metaphor for. I don't know, writing, putting a lot of effort into a piece of SEO content and then it gets five clicks or something. And, you know, <laughs> Your best feeling. Yeah. <laughs> like you're just revving the car, going all out and just making all this noise and you're falling behind everybody else. Right. <laughs> and oh. You're not even in the right gear. So anyway, we're not really here to talk about car transmissions or anything, although that is its own topic that could probably be shoehorned in somehow. But absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> shoehorned it is. Yeah. So we have this book called Capitalist Realism, Is There No Alternative by Mark Fisher, which we both read recently. I read it for the first time maybe a month ago, and then I picked it back up in the last few days just to go back through it. And Mark Fisher himself, he was a theorist and a music critic, and he had a pretty varied career. He passed away in 2017. He had committed suicide, but he, he had, like I said, cultural theory was his wheelhouse, which is a very, if you didn't go to grad school in the humanities, you might've never really encountered this field. And it's, it is an abstract, it's an abstract field, to be honest. It's something, it seems a little bit like philosophy, but it's, it's a little, it's a little more, I don't know, I would say it's less scientific, not in the sense that it's has no value or it has no accuracy, but just in the fact that its subjects of analysis are usually things like literature, cultural trends, anthropological trends. You have, there are a lot of people, figures in this field who are pretty standard across curricula. So you have people like Jacques Lacan, Foucault, Slavoj Zizek, which had a- He quote from Zizek a lot in this. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I uh, Jack was one of those figures that he. I really enjoyed seeing his how his his careers panned out because when I was yeah. in grad school twelve or thirteen years ago, Zizek he was this sort of fringe figure. You really had to be in the weeds of graduate level study in English or semiotics or something to have ever really encountered him. And then the next thing I know, he's never making fun of him in Chavo Trap House. Yeah, and he has a very distinctive accent, which is very easy to parody. And he, and, but your Fisher was, of course, this book, Capitalist Realism came out in, I want to say 2009. And so at that time, Zizek was still, he had not become this sort of celebrity. He's a meme. Yeah, he has become a meme. And uh, the other, Frederick Jameson, who was discussed in this book as well, is also a real towering figure in this field of like, cultural theory. Theodore Adorno, the Frankfurt School, which was a whole school of like German philosophers for, or, and cultural theorists. 
from the early 20th century that they had a little bit of breakthrough into the culture. I believe that the conservative commentator Mark Levin at some point was blaming them for everything that was wrong with America or something. Because you I, have I to have was... one thing to blame. <laughs> I think I'm not sure what the backstory there was. I think there might have been some kind of confusion of them with some something else. And, but anyway, they were they were in another pretty important school in that. But so capitalist realism, but just as some background, it was written as a text that basically was in dialogue with all of these high texts of cultural theory. So the Jameson, the Zizek, and some others. And but then it became a surprise hit. We're not talking like it became like the Da Vinci Code or anything. But it is a, a book that quite a few people have heard about and like I even the other day I was watching a YouTube video somebody was talking about art like the art the recent art vandalism of Vincent van Gogh's sunflowers and they talked about that they quoted capitalist realism at some point because capitalist realism does start off with something about art so that might actually be a good place to start because I, I think trying to set the stage here with the background all these theoretical debates is going to be way too abstract yeah uh, and it's it, it would just take way more time and energy and it would probably just bore everybody to tears which I think, perhaps why he did it that way yeah. in the book too like he he goes through a lot of different i um, think in one way of describe i would describe this book is that it, it exceeds in spite of itself because the subject matter is so dense yeah and the conversations that it's participating in are so difficult for the outsider to even i feel like i came into this having some background in this field and it was still difficult for me but i imagine somebody who was like who had never even heard of any of these people was coming into this they would just be lost i think for after oh, a while totally. i was in grad school uh, how long ago did you say yours was <laughs> it was like 13 or 14 years ago I yeah i think <laughs> i want to say 11 years and literary theory which is a lot of in in theory courses you study a lot of the folks that he talked about in this was never my forte we'll say yeah it's and something that it can generate strong feelings in people because first of all because it is it's so dense it's dense people, and it's it's difficult and it's esoteric it can also lend it i'd say it can it does often come with some pretty radical arguments that can be upsetting maybe or can be really jarring if you hadn't thought of something a certain way before so i think a part of, of this book did that to me yeah okay. so this book definitely that, fits yeah. into this and we can get into that later but the one that i always recall is like michelle foucault's history of sexuality where he's talking mm -hmm. about how the things like the categories of different of orientation if you're straight or you're gay or you're lesbian that those are recent inventions because and that they, they coincided with the rise of modern bureaucracy, which gathered data on people, mm. put people into categories. And really before, prior to just a few centuries ago, saying that you were straight would have basically no con no meaning. Yeah, Nobody no, would know what no you context. meant. Yeah, Nobody yeah. would have, you wouldn't have any context for that statement. A lot of times, so there's a couple of reasons. So this field can be, when people make fun of things like the go-to field that everybody likes to make fun of is gender studies. And really what they're talking about gender studies is a lot of times they're talking about these types of theorists who the theorists we names are not really gender theorists per se, but a lot of gen theorists who do look more at issues of gender I and mean, they're very much in the same ideological. I did mention ball. Butler in part of this. Yeah. Judith Butler, I think was, I think I did recall that too. And I was going to name drop her as well. The first time I actually heard of her fittingly was on a music blog, which was also one of Mark Fisher's domains. And they were, they classified her as one of the, the philosophers with the worst writing or something. And I don't know. I don't know if I would really agree with that. But uh, the funny thing was, I think one of their, one of their best writers, they said was Aristotle. 
And I'm like, how could you really what? even say that unless you... How could you compare? But you, well, first of all, unless you're Greek, I don't think you could really evaluate Aristotle as a writer. Yeah, because, that's a good point. <laughs> because translating him is actually pretty difficult sometimes because there's, soon there's a lot of words that have to be interpolated there because it's he'll just the way he writes. So sometimes it's very shorthand. It's like I just assume that he meant to add all these other words. On the other hand, I would say that Plato is a writer who in Greek... It reads very explicitly. And then in English, for some reason, a lot of times that doesn't come through quite as much. But anyway, so anyway, back to art, I was going to say that. So when he starts this P, this book, the first thing he talks about is the film Children of Men, which is a 2006 film based on a novel. And one of the things he talks about here is in the film. So the world is it's in terminal decline. No one is having any the human race isn't being reproduced. There's this authoritarianism, but it's one of the things that he harps upon is that the fate of the, like the famous pieces of art, like Picasso's Guernica and how, what happens to these pieces of art in the children of men universe. And so he says, quote, the fate of Picasso's Guernica in the film, once a howl of anguish and outrage against fascist atrocities, now wall hanging is exemplary and then like its Battersea hanging space in the film the painting is accorded quote iconic unquote status only when it is deprived of any possible function or context no cultural object can retain its power when there are no longer new eyes to see it so to translate what's going on here it's like the the world is the world is basically ending so it's in just really dire straits but there's all of this art that are being, being preserved as this sort of all this great work, this iconic work. It has to be, it has to be preserved even just, even with everything else is just deteriorating. And the way he looks at this is talking about how in this film and 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 more generally in in this concept that he calls capitalist realism is the future has has been foreclosed. There is no future. There's no prospect of anything getting better or not just getting better, but changing really in any way, like whatever. Just what we have right now. Yeah, it it is what we have right now. And and the subtitle of this book, Is There No Alternative? And that's a play on words or it's a reference to a Margaret Thatcher statement where she said there is no alternative in in regard to the capitalist, like neoliberal type system that was arguably at its peak when she was like the prime minister of the UK. So... This in this, but he also goes into, he talks about T.S. Eliot and T.S. Eliot had talked about in an essay that called Tradition and the Individual Talent, Mm. that there's sort of a reciprocal relationship between the canonical and the new. So canonical being something like a Nika or some classic piece of art and the new being something that literally had just come out. And he says, quote, the new defines itself in response to what is already established. At the same time, the established has to reconfigure itself in response to the new. Eliot's claim was that the exhaustion of the future does not even leave us with the past. Tradition counts for nothing when it is no longer contested and modified. So I think that this is a really good point. One way I thought of this is something that you can see in the modern day in a totally different context is that like on Twitter, for example, a lot of the conservative voices on there would never probably go on there or see any value in, in and even using the platform, if there weren't so many 
liberal commentators who are always challenging all the conservative norms. Because once you have a platform that's nothing but conservatives, like something like these different parlay or, or true social, yeah. it's basically a ghost town because there's nothing to, to butt up against there. Yeah. And there's no, uh, you can't say, you, you can't be grandstanding about how, how great quote unquote Western civilization is. If nobody there even really knows what you're talking about. Because if it's a bunch of conservatives, like they're not going to care about your rant on that because either they, they already agree with you or they might not even know what you're talking about. It's like echo chambers, right? An echo chamber provides no room for growth and it provides no real like sense. Like you're saying, like you can't butt up against anything in an echo chamber because everybody already believes what you're saying. So there's no possibility that the culture can grow or change. Yeah, you can't say your tradition is superior because it's not even being contested. Right, so nothing to compare it to. There's nothing to lord it over either. If you want a real something or other, you have to try this. You know, there's nothing you can't, none, that doesn't exist. And I had, in one of my blog posts, which I'll link in the show notes, I, I had riffed on these couple of passages because I, in the context of the content mill, because of the content mill, in a way, I had argued that one of the assumptions of the term content but was that really there wasn't anything new to be invented, that basically everything was interchangeable. And it was just a, it was just a matter of finding something from the catalog or something and recycling it and just getting it out there again. And, and so what I'd, one example I'd given was like at the content mill, a lot of our writing was simply finding a press release or an article that already existed, scraping some interesting bits off of that, and then using a writerly touch to spice it up some. Maybe maybe you'd called a client and gotten a quote from them or gotten some lead from them, but otherwise you were recycling. And then I had also looked at how this happens with Netflix and Disney, Nintendo, Microsoft, You know, all of them have these Really, the value of all these companies is tied so much to the the intellectual property that they have. And mm-hmm. I had linked to this this tweet where someone had said, you know, if superhero media is our modern myths, and they'd quote put that in quotes because someone is something someone else had argued, then why do films like The People's Joker get pulled? And just, just for background, The People's Joker was like a sort of a fan made Joker film that got pulled down for like copyright issues. And this person says, because that's not what they are, they're corporate content mills and intellectual property to sit on and landlord. Mm. Copyright is the antithesis of mythology. So I think that the idea of having this intellectual property that you can just keep getting rants off of, but that's that everywhere, really. The fact that everything keeps getting remade, like everything is a remake of something. Everything else. is a remake. And we're like, a, I just was thinking of this because I was playing some, I've been playing some Square Enix games on the Switch, so like Bravely Default 2 and uh, and Triangle Strategy, but then I saw that they're making, they're remaking Dragon Quest 3 for, I think, I want to say the fourth or fifth time. <laughs> so like the Dragon Quest games for, I mean, they're somewhat notable in the West, but I mean, they're like all time blockbusters in Japan. We're talking about some of the best selling games of all time in Japan are in the Dragon Quest franchise, but Dragon Quest 3 came out in, I think, 1991 and it was remade for... It was remade for, I think, the Super Nintendo, the Game Boy Color, the mm-hmm. PS2, and it has another remasters coming out again. Gosh. It's uh, They just remake things that they know are going to succeed. And like yeah. I said, you have this, this, I don't know, like a cache of IP that just keeps giving. And I think this kind of, so this is actually a good segue into Frederick Jameson argument that Fisher is really engaging with at the very root of this book. Frederick Jameson had this concept of postmodernism, which he defined as the cultural logic of late capitalism. 
So in what he is getting at with that phrase is that with capital, with this idea of, of capitalism being just all dominant, that there's there's no more future to move towards because we've sort we've made we've reached and and Fisher even refers this the end of history which is another a similar theory by the political scientist Francis Fukuyama which mm-hmm. was very popular around the end of the Cold War because they're like well we've reached democratic capitalism one there's really nowhere else to go after this we've reached the pinnacle of, of political systems and human civilization so in Jameson's idea he expected that in postmodern culture sort of the two, the dominant trends would be pastiche and revivalism, Mm. which I think that's really, that really has played out the way he thought it was because what you get now, of course, revivalism all the time. We have these massive franchises that, that dominate, you know, like for example, film in particular, and pastiche could be anything like taking a little bit of something and mashing it up with something else. You could even argue that hip hop as a genre is like the, the epitome of, of pastiche because you're taking a lot of times samples of other songs and manipulating them and sometimes making them almost unrecognizable. But still, in a way, you have all these references that are being collapsed into one whole and it's this thing that happened in the past or so. Right. Yeah. So, uh, well, that's like, do you think parody would fall under that category too? Right. Yeah. I think, I think the dominance of the, the, how quote unquote viral, a lot of parody accounts have gone is part of that, because I think in, in that case, you are reviving something that, you know, people already know about. And then you're mashing it up. I was just thinking there was some account or was it a Twitter account or like a Netflix show? Someone who basically was just, who was just doing like lip syncing to like various Donald Trump speeches. Great. And like, that was basically all she was doing. It wasn't like she was, she wasn't even really, and she was like wildly popular. I can't, and what did I say that? adding anything to the discourse. Yeah. Wasn't, yeah. I can't even remember her name though, but anyway, <laughs> but then, or the, uh, the New York Times pitch bot account, that's always one of my favorites where they often will write like parody New York Times, New York Times headlines or like stories that are just absolutely doable as being in the New York Times' voice. And I'm trying to think of some examples because it's, and I'm just going to look up one real quick because it's a good example of like how someone has taken something that's already existing and just cut it up and done it in some different way. But let me see in New York Times. Oh yeah. I forgot the account's name. It was actually totally different than what its header is. But this is stuff like, like McSweeney's. That's what I would think of when I think of something that's parodying the New York Times literary style <laughs> yeah but he has one where it's hard the, the sort of the frame that it's always in is like in, in this ohio town it was a tradition colon and <laughs> I, I don't know if that actually appeared verbatim in a new york times story but it but sounds like something it sounds close yeah. enough <laughs> and then but in the way he's done all these are pretty good for example one of them is like in this ohio town it was a tradition latin mass listen to a little info wars then over to the town where the school shooting happened to harass the grieving parents of the victims. But now the woke mob is trying to take all that away. So it's like, <laughs> it's like trying to be balanced, but at the same, I don't know, it was. <laughs> no, that's a very New York Times sentence construction for sure. But like now the woke mob is trying to take it all away. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's so many. It's hard to pick even one of these because they're all pretty good. In this Ohio town, it was a tradition. Pancakes at Bob Evans, put on the Buckeyes game, and then call Mitch McConnell. I'm begging to dump $25 million into your faltering Senate campaign. <laughs> So that one's pretty good. But anyway, yeah. so anyway, so going back to, so one of the consequences of postmodernism, Jameson calls it postmodernism, but Fisher calls it capitalist realism. And 
he argues that he's actually making an important distinction here because in when Jameson was writing, there was still a lot of alternatives to capitalism. There was the Soviet Union was still intact and there was you know, socialism was considered something that could be implemented and for real wasn't just theory. And Fisher is saying that now we need some kind of new concept because we're living in a time when there, there's really, it's, it feels like there's no alternative to capitalism. And then also postmodernism, as the word has plainly says, it, it, it has a relationship to modernism. And modernism is something that is like a 20th century movement. The different styles of writing and the styles of art and so on that, that emerged in the 20th century could somehow be grouped un, under this banner of modernism. I'm thinking James Joyce or Pablo Picasso, Jackson Pollock. Yes, Elliot. Yeah, I think those could all, that's a pretty diverse group of artists we just named, but they could all somehow go into modernism. But now it's like capitalist realism doesn't really have this sort of direct relationship with modernism. It's more like modernism is just one little enclosed style that can be revived at any time. Oh, there's somebody doing a callback to James Joyce or something like that. So right. it's not like you're really progressing from that. You're, it's just like, that's another tool in the pastiche arsenal is one way to put it. But uh, so that's, so that, and like I said, the content world also, you can see this too, because a lot of content, even at the content mill level is recycling. And then you get a lot of homogeneity too, because people are just trying to find, they know something works and then they just keep bringing it back and doing it, redoing it slightly differently. And uh, in some ways, like we talked in one episode about how the content mill is like a reproduction of the newsroom, right? So yeah. the... the way that it is organized is itself a pastiche of exactly. the news organization. Yeah. And like you said, we would take press releases and we would basically just turn around and regurgitate that press release. So that content is a pastiche of yeah. PR. So yeah, it, that's a really good point. I, yeah, like uh, the way Fisher puts it is modern is Modernism is now something that can periodically return, but only as a frozen aesthetic style, never as an ideal for living. Mm. So the content mill is, yeah, the journalism room, we have our fans that were like in the old office at the content mill, like the director had a like really fancy desk and you had a lot of newspapers on it and stuff. I'm like, yeah, there's your, you know, what Fisher calls the frozen aesthetic style. But the ideal of being a journalist writing news and making a pretty comfortable living at that, that's pretty much gone. So the aesthetic is still there. And you even have the, the, all the desks with the computers, even though everybody could probably easily do this from home. So the pastiche, yeah, definitely it was there. Another thing that I had thought about with you talking about how all Fisher talked about how the artworks in Children and Men were so dominant and how Jameson talked about revivalism. So I had recently seen this blog post on this blog called Lawyers, Guns, and Money, which is just like, a, uh, it's a politics blog, but also has some musical content as well. And it talks about old music is now so much more dominant than new music. So like the catalog songs, stuff that's been out for decades, artists like Bruce Springsteen and David Bowie, though that's really where the music industry is making all of its money now. And then it's also making a lot of its money off of things like vinyl LPs, which are 70 plus year old technology and it's harder for new artists to break through because you know, there's so much money and resources going into keeping these i don't know these older catalogs so prominent one of the things too they mentioned is how and going back to what i just said about copyright the song blurred lines from 2015 uh oh, from before that but there was a jury decision in 2015 where blurred lines was found to rip off 
a Marvin Gaye song. And uh, since then, it's like people have been very cautious about having any sort of song that doesn't, I mean, that ha- it could even be considered vaguely similar to an older song. Oh, that's uh, interesting. I was just <laughs> thinking about this yesterday. Because yeah. for some reason, my partner brought up the music video for Vanilla Ice. The, yeah. <laughs> you know, the song uh, that very clearly rips off the Queen uh, song. Under Pressure. Yeah, I can't even remember if it properly credits this. Because there was an era where, I want to say it was called something like the All Samples Cleared era, where basically any sample in a song didn't have to go through the... I'm just going to look it up quickly because I had not thought about that in a while. You know, like the Beastie Boys, I remember had a lot of albums where they just said, you know, were incredibly dense samples. Let me see. I'm just going to see if era gets me the result I want. No, maybe I'm just thinking of something else. But anyway, I... Uh, more yeah, I, I didn't mean to... Uh, oh, no, it's fine. Interrupt, we, can, yeah. we can always... Let me see. I was getting them... Oh, wait, here we go. It's not me what I'm looking for. Because, yeah, it's going back a little bit. That's a little further in the past. Yeah, it just says that, uh, yeah, very few samples were clear in the early days. So it's just like, I guess you used it and then you just, I guess you hope nobody sued you. But I'm looking at, let's see, they, they do have BC boys here. Yeah. <laughs> so like I said, the, yeah, so this is actually a good example of, of Besiege because the Beastie Boys album, Paul's Boutique, 1989, Contained about 100 to 300 musical excerpts. And then the, the band had to spend about a quarter of a million dollars on legal clearances. Oh my God. <laughs> and then, and then it says they're still getting the list of samples on albums so long. They're still getting sued over it. So I guess it was back then. It was sort of like you just used whatever and then you didn't really think about it. But then Made the price, <laughs> I guess. So, yeah. So that's, that's a pretty, yeah, sampling is another. So that's a, another good example of how prestige has come to be dominant and especially with hip hop taking over, displacing. Rock is maybe the dominant form of pop music, but uh, and Fisher does have something to say about that. So he on, I think later on he talks about. Of course, he does mention Kurt Cobain, and uh, so then he talks about how that's Nirvana became this hit, but then he, yeah, Nirvana they were very popular for about a really a three year stretch there from about 1991, 1994. Never mind, 1991 was a real breakthrough. I think it went diamond, meaning it sold over 10 million copies. And uh, then they had they had an MTV Unplugged special, which I believe came out posthumously. And then the song, the album In Utero, I think came out in 94 as well. And so Fisher talks about how Kurt Cobain talked, had been the voice of this generation who, quote, whose every move was anticipated track, bought and sold before it even happened. Cobain knew that he was just another piece of spectacle, that nothing runs better on MTV than a protest against M- MTV knew that his every move was a cliche scripted in advance, knew that even realizing it is a cliche. So in my notes, I just wrote heartbreaking. Yeah. Next to that. It that, is really heartbreaking, yeah. Yeah. And Especially considering that Kurt Cobain committed suicide. And this that I think has a lot to do with what Mark, what Fisher is saying here about how he realized that he was just he was creating the machine as he was in it. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. And he, uh, I'm assuming this is a quote from Jameson, but he doesn't quite make it clear for it. But he says that Cobain was in, quote, a world in which stylistic innovation is no longer possible, where all that is left to imi- where all that is left is to imitate dead styles, to mm-hmm. speak through the mass and with the voices of the styles in the imaginary museum. <laughs> so it's actually, I mean, it's, if you look at Nirvana, yeah, they were a breakthrough, but I don't know if I would describe them as really innovative. Their sound was, it was a pretty basic rock sound. You had you just like three piece guitar, 
bass and drums. And then there, there was some, there's quite a few predecessors for them. The Pixies was a pretty notable one. And then of course the, like the English punk bands like the Sex Pistols and the Clash and so on. But he talks about how this is, he, he moves on, he talks about how hip hop, hip hop, it was a good example of not only of prestige because of the use of sampling and also revivalism. There's a lot of times those songs were, they were taken from pretty old recordings. I think there's one, I want to say it's called like the Amen drum break or something, which is, it's a famous drum um, pattern from a band called the Winstons. And I don't, it came out quite a while ago, but if you, there is a site, I'm blanking on the name right now, but it lets you see what songs, various songs sampled. And that song in particular is one of the most sampled and it's just like a small snippet of drums. But anyway, with hip hop, one thing he points out here is that there's, there's sort of two different meanings of real. And so like capitalist realism, like what is so real about, what is the real and they're referring to. And he actually goes back to Simon Reynolds, who's a music critic, who says there's basically two types of real. So the first one is that the music is uncompromised. It hasn't, it hasn't been, it hasn't sold out. But that was a big thing that you don't really hear about anymore. But I, th- I feel like this was a Generation X thing more than anything else. It's like, I yeah, agree. Well, well, I never I sold out. You know? it, yeah. yeah, you don't really hear about it. But I guess I was just old enough to have, be on the tail end of knowing that was a thing. It was like, at least we never sold out. So it's so like, you know, you kept your uncompromising vision. And I think this might have, been part of the reason this is faded away is it might have been in the economic relations that required that have faded away too like it used to be like you, you might get this record deal or this book deal and then your a producer or your publisher would have these different stylistic demands and you would be like i'm not going to do that and then but then you might still be you might still be able to make enough money or sell enough copies whatever to succeed in spite of that like it's still going your own way but then now it's that's not really you probably would not get that level of independence anymore unless you were just like at the very, very top of the field. That's just one one theory on that. But the other meaning of real is that it it reveals this sort of gritty world. This art is gritty. It shows how depraved the world really is. And you hear this a lot. Like you, you can always see something like some movie or film or a book or anything. And it, it, somebody will say it's dark and it, it lifts the veil on something or it pulls back. It shows the world as it really is. And uh, so it, I think the way that Reynolds described it is the, a reality constituted by late capitalist economic instability, institutionalized racism, increased surveillance and harassment of youth by the police. Real means the death of the social. It means corporations should respond to increased profits, not by raising pay or improving benefits, but by downsizing. And then he goes on to, but it's, it's like, and I think that's one way to look at this is, you know, we always say this artist is so gritty, it's so violent. It's so real. It's so real. That's the way the world really is. And I think maybe what we're getting, maybe cause and effect mixed up here is instead of saying this art is what is showing the world as it really is. Well, what if our perceptions of the world are actually shaped by that art? So we, maybe the world isn't really this gritty, terrible place that is that these, you know, gritty pieces of art and gangster rap being just one example. Maybe it's not really the way, it isn't exactly the way that they portray it as. Maybe they are creating this sort of image that is in turn giving us, desensitizing us to something and making us see the world in that way. And I think it was like, so he goes on and he says something like, like he talks about how some specific examples like Scarface, The Godfather, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, and so on. They're, what they're saying they're doing is they're stripping the world of any sentimental illusions and seeing it for what it really is. And, uh, but then what if, 
what if the world isn't really like that? Maybe that is the idea that the world is this sort of depraved place is just an ideological consequence of capitalism. So it might, I think that later on he says something like, what he quotes Mike Davis, who actually just died this month. He was a, kind of a famous historian and a leftist. He's, he was talking about how, so Mike Davis says, there is no light left to cast shadows and evil becomes a forensic banality. He's talking about, he's writing about the novelist James Elroy. The result feels very much like the actual moral texture of the Reagan-Bush era, a supersaturation of corruption that fails any longer to outrage or even interest. Yet this very desensitized desensitization, that's a very hard word to say, is a function for capitalist realism. Davis hypothesized that the role of L.A. Noir may have been to endorse the emergence of homo Reaganists, so like a person who was an unabashed capitalist. Yeah, like the art there, the, the dark art, the gritty art is really endorsing this idea that um, that it's, it's okay for the world to be like that. It's okay for people to be like that because that's the way they really are. And it's making a claim there that it's we shouldn't just assume that's the way they really are. We should say, instead be thinking about who is saying that's the way that's the way it really is, because that's that is a claim that could be contested. And I had a thought on that I just totally lost, and oh, maybe it'll come back to me anyway. So let me see what I've got on my the rest of my notes. Oh yeah, I had something on. Let me see. Go to. Yeah. So I, I think yeah, this is just a, a quick thing, but later on in, in the book, Fisher had said that neoliberals were more Leninist than actual Leninists because they had sort of used these think tanks to make... Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah, what what like, page was that on? I... It's on page 29. So it's this he talks about how he's engaging with this, with the work of David Harvey, who wrote a lot on neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is not one of those words. It's, it's really hard to engage with in a way because it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But I guess if you had to sum it up, it's something like the market knows best. Every problems need to be solved on the individual level. People need to be responsible. And then like people who, you know, who fail, they own their failure. It's not, can't blame it on anything society-wide and so on. And then a lot of times neoliberalism is associated with consequences like increased inequality. That's a big one in particular. And concentration of wealth in the hands of the top 1% or even like a sliver of that 1%. And then he engages with his work from David Harvey. And Harvey had argued that neoliberalism was really a political project more than an economic one. And because a lot of times neoliberalism is framed as just like hard-headed economic reality. So we have to cut taxes or else we will never be able to grow. And, and I don't know if it was this book or I was also reading the Thomas Piketty book a while ago, but a lot of the world's economies grew faster before neoliberalism. So neoliberalism became very common, like in the 1970s, 1980s, like the elections of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan were- Right around that time that they're talking he, about that the capitalist yeah. realism became more of the, right. the only thing that right. the only alternative. Yeah. And the, there is no alternative is literally a, a Margaret Thatcher quote. A lot of times it is depicted as this, just we're just running the numbers. So this is how you do it. But it, as Fisher says with Harvey, it's, it's more of a political project. And then the economics, the economic effects are, are downwind of that. I just feel we think rich people need more money. Poor people, they can just go pound sand or something. If you start with that as your assumption, instead of we just want to get the numbers right, neoliberalism makes a lot more sense because the consequences of it have been pretty clear. And it, it's been 
increased inequality. It's been a rise in mental illness rates. It's been... It continues. I mean, you said this book was published in 2009. Yeah. Yeah. It's, he's, uh, it feels like something could have been published today almost because it's still really quite relevant to everything. And, but what he, what, what Fisher said about Harvey was that neoliberals had used think tanks over things like, I'm trying to think of some examples that people might've heard of, but the Brookings Institute, I think is one that is common or the, uh, or some other ones, the Niskanen Center. There's a lot of them on the right wing. There's like the Heritage Foundation. There's, gosh, I'm blanking on some more, but basically these sort of organizations whose whole goal is just to create research that supports an agenda. So like they have an agenda, then their whole purpose is just to generate papers and talking points and people who can appear on talk shows to push these different points. And it's like the, these people are creating like the ideological climate and that's what Fisher calls it. And so that's where the, that's where the capitalist realism, the neoliberals, and that's where it can really flourish once you've had all of these, this sort of groundwork that's been laid by these people who can, who are pushing these ideas. So it's not something that's just happening organically. It's not something that's sort of natural or in- inevitable. It's really a political project. So that's it's, what, yeah. yeah. So that's what I was going back with just to tie it back to that previous point about how a certain film or piece of art or something would show the world the way it really is with no sentiment. The idea that the world doesn't have any sentiment is itself kind of an ideological construction. You're pushing an agenda. You can't really, you can't really just exist in this vacuum. But yeah, it's... I think tanks like to pretend like they exist in vacuums. Yeah, I think that's really, if you had a sign of the think tank, it would be something like, we curated this a priori knowledge and it's right. <laughs> yeah, this is an eternal truth that we came to. And, but it's, and then I was just thinking of uh, that next quote on that page by Deleuze. Oh, yeah. I found that really interesting. So he's talking about this idea, right? That the think tanks have created this ideological climate that is the perfect climate for capitalist realism. And the, let's see, he's quoting from. What is Deleuze's first name? I don't see I think it. it's, uh, yes, like G-I-L-E-S. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. yeah. That's why I don't remember it. But yeah. Who basically says that, he says, one of the most important questions will concern the ineptitude of the unions tied to the whole of their history of struggle against the disciplines or within the spaces of enclosure. Will they be able to adapt themselves or will they give way to new forms of resistance against the societies of control? Yeah. Sounds like endlessly yeah. fascinating, right? Yeah. These societies I, of control that they're talking about are, it's like a hallmark, the kinds of, of things that we're, the thing that we're talking about, right? Yeah. I think there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of meat in that. And that I want to say that's a pretty old statement because it's probably several decades ago, but it's quite relevant now because unions are really decimated by you know, like Thatcherism and Reaganism. And even now you know, the, the fierce, the fierceness of a lot of anti-union efforts is still very apparent. Like Starbucks in particular is one of the best examples, like Starbucks okay. in recent memory, because they've just been so anti-union and what you're talking about here is that people are trying to form these unions at Starbucks stores so that they don't have to do things like you know, never know what their schedule is. It could be at any moment they could be called in and I think they call it zero hour scheduling. So it's like, you don't really know what your schedule is going to be. And basically you're always on call. And then even when you go in, it's not like you're on call and you're like a physician and someone's paying you hundreds of dollars to do something. You're literally probably making $15 an hour. If that. And if that, and then it's a very 
difficult job because Starbucks in particular, the drink menu is incredibly complicated and the volume of customers is just immense, especially in the mornings. So you're talking about a job that really is, it's sort of the barista job has become one that is that the right wing likes to make fun of a lot now. I sort of, I don't know what the equivalent would have been in the past of this type of job. If you think about it, a lot of people on the left, I think still have this sort of outdated idea of who like the archetypal like union blue collar worker is. They probably, a lot of people seem to think it's silicon, some kind of coal miner with a hard I hat I literally on. was and just thinking coal yeah, miner, yeah. Coal miner or some guy with a hard hat on doing something. It doesn't even matter. Just the fact that he's wearing a hard hat, that's that was important. But anyway, but then in a way, the barista is more indicative of really, I think the modal type of union job now. Because I mean, there's so many of them out there. A number of coal miners in the whole country is like, is just, it's basically a rounding error. Yes, uh, and right. it's, but then Starbucks, for Starbucks to be so anti-union is in a way surprising because you think about it like Starbucks, I would say its origin, it was a liberal, I would say it's liberally coded because it's something that like uh, people whose pol- people in cities would go to or people who had you know, left liberal politics would gravitate more to. Uh, and because even now- like a salon yeah, type. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's sort of like, even now, a lot of Republicans will make jokes about how someone's a latte sipping liberal. And it's funny because you can get a latte basically anywhere now. And you can, and you, you can get a, you can get a latte at a drive through like near where I grew up, which is just a pretty red rural area. I mean, you can like get a latte at McDonald's probably. Yeah. Thing, like it's not even, it's not even elite anymore. Yeah. And so it goes to that point where it's, yeah, these types of barista, Star, Starbucks barista jobs are very common. And the fact that they're unionizing, I mean, it, it's, it is a pushback against like what Deleuze called the society's of control. And I don't know if it, I would say it's a new type of resistance because it is, unionism is a pretty or unionization is an older, I mean, it's a pretty time-owned tactic, but like I said, the union membership in the U.S. has really plummeted in over the last couple of decades in private sector. It's, it might even be in the single digits. I don't know. If not, it's maybe 10% or somewhere in that neighborhood. Yeah, the ineptitude of unions, and that's something that maybe, I'm not sure what the alternative that is in pushing back, and you could have something like everybody's dreaded phrase, quiet quitting. Oh my gosh, um, there is a part of this and we're going to have to talk about the, his <laughs> comments about yeah. corporate America and oh, yeah. bureaucracy and things like that. But there is literally a part of this where I wrote on top of the page, quiet quitting. Quiet <laughs> quitting. Yeah. Let me send a message real quick. Then. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Quiet quitting. And yeah, the, I thought the academia part of that is definitely, is definitely relevant. So it's relevant in particular to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I work in or in a university. Yes. Academia. A university. Yeah. Yeah. So I think he had, I think, yeah. in that quote about the societies of control, he said, maybe young people have boasting of being motivated, re-requesting apprenticeships and permanent training. Yeah. I don't know if that is, is panned out as much. I see, and of course, we do have internships and so on, but those have been unpaid and so on. I think maybe that's not really a very effective form of resistance because those people are being pretty badly exploited. This really struck me as 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 a person who has in my life previously said, yes, I'm feeling really motivated today or no, I'm not feeling very motivated. I, it just the way that Fisher talks about this, he says, what must be discovered is a way out of the motivation slash demotivation binary so that disidentification from the control program registers as something other than dejected apathy. So if you're not motivated and you're not demotivated, 
Yeah. You know? The end result is that you feel very apathetic, but he's saying that we have to figure out a way not to be on that spectrum. Yeah. It's, he's, he's saying that unions used to, they used to really focus on pay and then they need to have some sort of other, some sort of other type of discontent to bring to the table. And uh, in a way, it, it seems like they really haven't found that because I know that like in, there's this scenario on YouTube called Labor the Wilderness Years. And it's uh, it's about the UK Labor Party from like 1979 to 1995, I think, because it came out, the document came out in 1995. So during that entire period, the Labor Party had been in opposition. They'd lost, they'd lost like four elections in a row. And a big part of that was that a lot of these unions they got broken up and then nothing really replaced them on the left for a while. It was just, there was this void. And for the Labor Party in particular, that was pretty important because as the name indicates, it was created as a party for people who do labor. So people who, a lot of your trade unionism was a huge part of the original your coalition of that party. And then now though, like a lot of those like things like the miners union and so on, that's, those are much reduced in numbers and force in the labor party and even in the democratic party in the u.s unions in the u.s to the extent that they exist they are pretty left-leaning and the only exception i can think of are like police unions which are a little bit of a different beast but most unions in the u.s are left-leaning and then they but they um you know, they're folk, they have tried to focus on things like the traditional focus of wages and, but then also things like being able to set your own schedule or being able to log off for once instead of having to. Once. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I was just thinking about this because, uh, yeah, I saw somebody in a thread, two people going back and forth and one of them was saying that the person needed to log off. And then, cause he was making <laughs> all these pronouncements about something and it seemed like the other person was like, well, these are pretty out of, these are pretty out there. And, yeah. But yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. The, what you said about the Starbucks speeds, what did you call it? Zero hour? Zero hour scheduling. Yeah. Yeah. That's so. absolutely bonkers. And yeah. that's the kind of thing that, that he's talking about that unions need to. to yeah. They need out. to find something, some way to deal with that. And there's, I think another one way that, and that the lose like quote, yeah, you know, like one thing is like unions seem to have made it basically no inroads into software. And it seems like a lot of times it's like, uh, it's like, I don't know, it's like software engineers that they'd never even think about how, how unionization might benefit them. But they got, yeah, I, I think I saw something as some software engineer was saying something like, what if we got royalties for the code we wrote? And, and instead of having to like redo it all the time and something is like, you're so close to getting it. Yeah. And, uh, but then, but then like Silicon Valley is so anti-union as well. And I guess obviously Starbucks is not really part of Silicon Valley, but it still has that sort of, I'm not I think sure. it's in the periphery. Somehow they fit into the same ideological space for me like they're both these sort of we're this sort of hip left-leaning but not really west coast brand what so maybe that, liberal coded I liberal think, coded yeah, yeah that, that's yeah where i'm at with them yeah, yeah. i think uh, yeah i've gotten to that where such such as coded as something other another something that really stuck with me was someone said that if you were a man and you were you went for a walk around town that was gay coded i've been thinking <laughs> about this for a while because i guess straight men drive everywhere oh man i love these absolutes <laughs> <laughs> so i just thought about that i'm like well i guess there's something to that like if i'm going for a really long walk somewhere i, I don't know uh-oh but, uh, yeah <laughs> you but, better not drive anywhere better not drive <laughs> but uh <laughs> one thing I, I thought about with the software thing too and actually this ties into wonder fisher's points was that so i found this tweet let me see if i can dig it up it's by some anonymous account of course 
But so something like, so this person was looking at a thread of, I don't know if it, oh, so it was from Y Combinator, which is, or actually Hacker News, which is the forums that are for Y Combinator, which is one of Silicon Valley's biggest incubators of startup news, startups. And this post that this person was sharing from Hacker News, where someone was describing how he was going to fix some old development team, some project he'd taken on, how it was such a huge nightmare. And so he said that the code he was looking at, the computer code he was looking at, generated about $20 million a year in revenue. So that's a pretty good amount. So that's, if you want to put that into context, that's about as much as Elon Musk could make for charging every Twitter verified account, like $20 a year, whatever you wanted to do, or, or a month or whatever. So it's a decent chunk of change, although you know, by contrast, it's probably in the ballpark of what Apple makes in an hour. Yeah. So anyway, and he goes on, I said, it runs on PHP. It's been developed directly into production with no source control. It doesn't use any composer dependency management. doesn't use any framework. And then it goes on, it basically just like the worst case scenario, like impossible to deal with. And someone, someone had quote tweeted this and he was a software engineer. So he said, honestly, the lesson you should take away from this as a software engineer is that it pretty much doesn't matter if you do a good job or not. Hmm. And, that, and that positively. And he says, so you screwed up and didn't use source control, wrote global spaghetti go didn't think hard about security committed committed unspeakable sins who cares you'll move on a year or two and, and never care about it again zero accountability for anything and then as long as you the only reason to care about the quality of work is to avoid getting fired and then if you think something is intrinsically worthwhile and so on so he goes on how this is even a bigger issue if you work for like a mega company because in, in that case people are probably not even seeing what you do and i think on page 23 fisher had said he had talked about colleges Hmm. Like how, you know, the way that colleges are funded, basically they can't really, they can't exclude students even if they want to, because they need the money. And, uh, and then, so he says that the combination of market imperatives with bureaucratically defined targets and the targets is in quotes, is typical of the market Stalinist initiatives, which now regulate public services. The lack of an effective disciplinary system has not, to say the least, been compensated for by an increase in student self-motivation. Students are aware that if they don't attend for weeks on end and or if they don't produce any work, they will not face any meaningful sanction. It is, there's something going on there with how there is this, there's this system where it's sort of, there's, you have to take these students in, but then they don't really have to do anything. So it's- I think he also talks about this, the way of looking at students as they are the customer. Oh yeah, At, on page I was actually getting ready to go right. It, oh yeah, on page forty-two, he says that. Um, so he's talking about market marketization, different services, and how you, you know, everything has to be. A lot of things are being or trying to be you put onto marketize somehow. You know, the market is being un, unleashed upon them. That's the hallmark of neoliberalism. But at the same time, so he says that there's like an inherent resistance of certain processes and services to marketization. So, so he gives education as an example. He says the supposed marketization of education, for instance, rests on a confused and underdeveloped analogy. Are students the consumers of the service or its product? So that's and yes, the yeah. answer is yes. <laughs> yeah. So, so is education the thing that you're offering, or is are the students the the thing that you're building up as the product? So it's and I guess like you said, it could be both. It could be both that you're you're offering education as a product, in which okay. case the students are your consumers, and then and but if you reverse it and the students are the product, who is the consumer there? Though is it the 
I, mean, I guess one thing I thought of is this incessant focus we always have on STEM education, your STEM, mm-hmm. science, technology, engineering, and math. I guess the consumer for that is the, the employer, which... Uh, like yeah. at the end of the day, the consumer for the product of the student is the capitalist economy, because really that it just perpetuates. You go to school, you get a job, you work nine to five blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And this, yeah, this, this will be upsetting to a lot of people, I think, to hear this, but I think the entire way of thinking that education is basically just a product for capitalist. Hold on, I have to, uh, my audio, let me delete this other track. Sorry about that. Mm -hmm. But the thing I was going to say was that this idea that education is a product for capital owners to consume via like the, wait, no, that the students are the product for the capitalists the capital owners to quote unquote consume as mm-hmm. a horrible image. But anyway, it is very right wing because yeah. Scott Walker, like of the governor of Wisconsin for eight years, or he felt like he was governor for like a million years. A million. He was so into that. He was always saying the purpose of education is to reinforce the economy of Wisconsin or something. And like that had gone and that was in direct contrast to whatever the previous mission statement of like the University of Wisconsin system was, well, when you do see education as this, it's just a pipeline to a job and that's it. That's, that's a very right-wing idea. And it's not just, it's not just Scott Walker. I mean, the whole I, the Silicon Valley, which for all we think of as Silicon Valley is in and around the Bay Area, which itself is incredibly politically liberal, of course. It's the home of Nancy Pelosi and Kamala Harris. Gavin Newsom, California itself is like literally the bluest state. The upper echelons of Silicon Valley, like your Elon Musk, your Mark Andreessen's, David Sachs, those type of people, Peter Thiel. Um, oh, yeah. They're they are very, they didn't really try to hide it. They're very right wing. And the whole idea that you know, we're falling behind in the science education, math education, schools need to just be this pipeline that goes to the employer. Yeah, that's a very right wing idea. And I think a lot of people don't know that. And, you and I went to school for humanities and yeah. we didn't necessarily, I won't speak for you. I'll speak for me. <laughs> I didn't necessarily go to school with the intention to like, I wanted to get a job eventually, but you don't go to graduate school in English because you like want to yeah. do English unless right. you want to become a college instructor. But, but I worked at the business school at my university for a long time. And it is, that's what, that's exactly what it is. It's a pipeline from the classroom to the Wall Street, for lack of a better word, because these kids were getting jobs as juniors, as juniors in college, they were signing contracts saying in a year and a half, when I graduate, I will come work for Goldman Sachs or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's, I think that that, I did have that mentality too. Like I I was thinking like, I'll get a job at some point. But it wasn't, I'm going to get, I was aiming to get a specific job or that I had a salary band of some kind in mind, like right. you know, a range. Like I, I was never really thinking about it in, in like those types of concrete terms. It's just like, it'll happen maybe. But then, yeah. and then, but then if you look at it actually, and I have a, I found a chart or something on this. If you look at the number of English and humanities degrees versus the number of like computer science degrees granted. There's a real inflection point after 2008. Mm-hmm. So when the financial meltdown happened, so then it became, I guess people just had a really hard time finding any jobs after that. And it really was not even related in a way to 
to probably to even what you studied, it was just like there was 10% unemployment. There was, you couldn't really apply to any job without having to compete with hundreds of people. Maybe if you had something very specialized, you need literally being a doctor or something, because in that case, the number of you have doctors who are, can graduate every year in the U.S. is basically artificially capped. It's like yeah. you have an advantage because there are only so many of you that are even allowed to be in the field. for the same Yeah, time. and then, but then after that, it's like, the number of vanity degrees has really fallen off a cliff since then. And really, I look at it from my own timeline as I graduated right before the incredible downfall. Bob is like, I don't know, my brother's age. I probably would have had a very different outlook because I would have entered college in the 2010s during this sort of malaise. And then I would have probably had a very different aim. I would have been, maybe I should just become a computer scientist and just sling code and then maybe I'll make a decent salary. I don't have to love it, but it's something. And I did think of this just now when he said that it wasn't clear if students were the consumers or the product. So you can't have that really right-wing frame where the student is literally something for the capitalist to feed into their machine. But in another level, you can also have another right-wing frame there. Of One thing that was really common maybe 10 years ago or five years ago was these sort of developer boot camps. So oh, yeah. like you would go to this boot camp for a couple of months, maybe. And then it was like our job placement rate is 90%. So that was probably, that, that was really an artifact of that era where it was like really hard to find a job because now every place you walk to is help needed. And then maybe it's not the best job in the world. It's about as close as we can get in the modern day to the boomer ideal of 72, where you just walk into some building and you get a job. You had a job. And, then, uh, and uh, anyway, um, yeah, so that was, that's another one because in that case, sort of who needs education of any type. We just had literally just pay us $10,000 and you'll get a job, basically. It's just a pure market transaction. But another thing he talks about with education is that on that same page, he talks about how there's like this idea of you have this market, we have this sort of these frictionless exchanges between buyer and seller, but then you get this gap between basically you get this tendency where work becomes entirely about generating these representations of itself rather than what the actual work itself is accomplishing. This is where he talks about auditing because yeah. that was fascinating to me. Yeah. He said it like something like in, inevitably what we have is not a direct comparison of workers performance or output, but a comparison between the audited representation of that performance and output. Inevitably a short circuiting occurs and work becomes geared towards the generation and massaging of representations rather than to the official goals of the work itself. And he goes on to, he goes on for a while here, how symbols have all this value. And, uh, and then there's also, I think he quotes Zizek, who says that like the, I think the Soviet Union was a, was an empire of signs, which is a pretty memorable phrase Had all these different rituals and, and so on. And really the sign was almost what had more value than anything. And then there's something like value value was generated on the stock exchange depends on, of course, less on what a company really does and more on perceptions of and beliefs about its future performance. So I think this is actually a pretty good bit to talk about. I think like Facebook for in, in particular, like in the content world for a long time, it was like, couldn't have any sort of, if you get any sort of SEO content, you definitely wanted to share it to Facebook. Or if you had any sort of video content in particular, you wanted to get it on there. And for years, like I remember in the early days working at the content, that was the peak era of the pivot to video. Oh my gosh. Um, where like every website was like, we're pivoting to video. And it was like, <laughs> you go to their website, instead of all these articles that you would read before, instead it would just be just a bunch of videos. I think one of the uh, most egregious was 
it's one of the like Fox Sports or something for a while. It's their website. It was just a bunch of videos. It's like, why can't I just read an article about this? I just want to like, read something. I just want to read something. I don't <laughs> think the video was even, it wasn't more efficient really in any way. And a lot of times you have to wait for it to load. And then you wouldn't even, you'd have to jump around trying to find the part you wanted instead of just being able to control F on, a, on an article. Anyway. And but the, the cool, fun part, right? The cool, fun part of this story is that all of Facebook's <laughs> metrics about how effective videos were totally made up. Made up. So actually, that's that goes exactly well, how Fisher's. Yeah, exactly. So it actually is a perfect example of Fisher's point about how the representations of the work are way more important than the work itself. So it's like, we have these metrics that say that this is great. It doesn't matter. It's actually, it's just totally fabricated. So it's, it's, uh, it, but then the fact that people thought that it was working, that had so much value like, until last year, Facebook was worth a trillion dollars. And now it's worth something like 200 billion. So literally it's lost 80% of its value in a year as the online ad market has gone soft, but it's a really good, and then also the metaverse thing has been like the horrible low res Wii-esque graphics in 2022. Literally something from the Wii era, probably the Nintendo Wii probably looks better than what some of the metaverse applications that, that Facebook has built. Yeah, it's, uh, but yeah, it's the symbol is really what matters. And he had that pretty good passage where he quoted from, I think it was either, it was G, where he talked about how someone who, I think he says that those who do not allow themselves to be caught in these symbolic deception slash fiction we just talk about like a legal case like when when a judge speaks there is in a way more truth in his words the words of the institution of law than in the direct reality of the person of the uh, then sorry then in the direct reality of the person of judge if one limits oneself to what one sees one simply misses the point so he goes on to say those who do not allow themselves to be caught in the symbolic depiction slash fiction who continue to believe their eyes are the ones who err most. The cynic who believes only his eyes misses the efficiency of the symbolic fiction and how it structures our experience of reality. Mm -hmm. So it's like the person who thinks that the person who is, who is buying into this ritual, like how the judge has all this authority, authority because he's sitting on this bench, he has this robe on and so on. The person who is really enmeshed in that ritual is actually more in touch with in reality than a cynic is like, oh, this is all a silly. He's just another person. It's like the exact opposite of what you would think because it actually goes back to the earlier point where we're like, this is the way the world really is. The world is really just unsentimental, blah, blah, blah. What if that's not the case and all of our meaning actually comes from all of these sentimental sort of rituals and symbols and so on? Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, it's like, yeah, you know, people think Tesla is almost as valuable as like Google or something, which is if you look at the actual revenues of those two companies, it's pretty ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, it's not even close. Like Google makes way more money and Tesla has recalled like half the vehicles it's ever manufactured. But anyway, so yeah, so there there's something there about how the symbolic thing and really yeah, I think like content mills really play on this too, because if you could get really get down to it, a lot of times, like content mill content makes absolutely no difference to the bottom line. It, it, it doesn't, it's not going to save a failing business. And a lot of times it's just, but just the idea of the, that you're doing something and that you have these experts and in, in scare quotes on your side, that's, there's apparently a lot of value in that. You're inside the machine and you're creating the machine as you are inside of it. Yeah, exactly. And, and that value is just as real in a way, because it is a lot of times it is real money for the people who are pulling off the symbolism. But there's a quote that he wanted to talk about that has something to do with that. He talked a little bit about how auditing like auditing culture, especially in the academia, right? So it, essentially he's saying that, that the audit doesn't mean anything except for to itself. So it's these symbols that are 
Is this the one about, uh, so like the line manager, any chance, like it's on page 52. He says something like, let's see. Yeah. I was thinking I'm on page 40, 42 or three. He's talking about, let's see. Auditing can perhaps be best conceived of as a fusion of PR and bureaucracy. Uh, Democratic data is usually intended to fulfill a promotional role. In the case of education, for example, exam results or research ratings augment or diminish the prestige of particular institutions. And he's saying that instructors get really frustrated with the fact that they need to produce good exam scores and et cetera, because the data doesn't really mean anything other than because of their reputational garbage. Right. The, let's see, he says, as Eva Berglund puts it, the information that audit creates does have consequences, even though it is shorn of local detail, so abstract as to be misleading or (laughs) meaningless, except that is by the aesthetic criteria of audit itself. What what page is this on? I'm sorry, I think I lost. I I think my pages are not the same as yours. Not the same, okay. I'm on 42. 42, Um, I think it might be, I think we might have different pages then, Yeah. I do remember that. And it, I just came across one where it, all that is solid melts into PR, which is that's a yeah. response, the communist manifesto. So that's, yes, that is very much true. And uh, yeah, I see, I think I might've, I see. Oh yeah. This is one, this is a little bit different, but uh, yeah, he said that the big other could be defined as the consumer of PR and propaganda, the virtual figure, which mm-hmm. is required to believe even when no one, no individual can. But yeah, I think what you said about the PR fusion is. Uh, you yeah, have PR and bureaucracy. And he yeah. said something else about bureaucracy that I was really interested in that I need to find. Yeah, I was looking at another. Oh, so bureaucracy, I think this is, this was part of the interview that I found that he did. He says, bureaucracy has become decentralized, not mm-hmm. just something to which we are subject now. It's something which we are required to actively produce ourselves, which is what I've been saying about being inside the machine and making the machine. Why yeah, yeah. He uh, on this uh, on my page fifty, he said that the bureaucratic procedures float freely, independent of any external authority. But that very autonomy means they assume a heavy implacability, or resistance to any amendment or questioning. So it's like they they stop being. It, this actually is a good example of neoliberalism because instead of them being issued handed down by some kind of central authority like a you know, communist organization or a communist party. It's just sort of something like you have to do and you almost get to the point where you can't, you, you stop even questioning it. So it's, I think he gives an example of like a performance review. It's sort of you have to, you have to be somewhat self-critical in them, even though the criticisms are purely symbolic and they would never be acted upon. It's just like you're going through the ritual of saying, well, I did okay, but I could be better in this regard. And well, sort of like, you, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. That's <laughs> always bothered me because we do performance reviews. You have you you get like five stars or whatever yeah. and if you give yourself five stars on anything they're like but why did why do you think you can exactly five stars? yeah like <laughs> I, I always give myself like three or four stars yeah you have to I, do three or I, four I, but I, I they would, don't ask you to 
<laughs> otherwise, like he's exactly right because otherwise it's, it creates a lot of questions. Like, right. like he says, it will never be acted upon as if performing self-flagellation as part of a purely formal exercise and cynical bureaucratic compliance for any less demoralizing. What I find really dystopic is that the the HR system that we are using now actually has encoded that into the system. So if you give yourself five stars, it automatically pops up a required box that says explain. <laughs> why you have given yourself this amount of yeah. yeah that's like the equivalent of the the reddit reply or the twitter replies like source question <laughs> <laughs> oh my god if only oh my god i'm having like flashbacks here yeah so it's uh, i think the, the bureaucracy point is i mean you could we go on a long time about that because i know we mentioned mm-hmm. bureaucracy in a previous episode where we were talking about how like search algorithms like instead of like search algorithms being just a neutral reflection of what you're searching for, that they're kind of in a way steering you down a certain path. Like you, you're changing your behavior to accommodate the algorithm, not the other way around. So the algorithm is always changing. We think, oh, the algorithm is becoming more responsive to our preferences and maybe not. Maybe the algorithm is actually trying to sort us into a certain, in a certain way. And we have to do this sort of hack to get around this Google quirk to get the results we want. But we're changing the way that we do things to accommodate the algorithm. And it's, uh, but it's, uh, and it's an Ouroboros. I, it, 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 it's similar to what you were talking about with like gritty art. And yeah. is this how the world actually is? Is this how the algorithm actually operates? Or is that just how we are reacting to that particular piece? Right. And it's true. Yeah. It's, anyway, this book's really depressing. <laughs> <laughs> it is depressing in a way. It's, I mean, it's, it doesn't really offer a ton of hope. There's a, there are a few little strands there. Although I, I'm going to say this is going to sound really weird, but I thought it's mental health things were actually kind of liberating. I agree. A, so yeah, I, let's talk about that. We, we've sort of saved this for last. But in a way, this is the most incendiary part of the book yeah. is is his. And this is what I was getting at earlier when I said that cultural theory a lot of times is something that it can be very jarring to people because they had never thought about something a certain way. And so he has a lot of thoughts on mental health. And one of the things that he talks about here, so early on, he talks about how in capitalist realism, mental health is treated as a, a natural fact. So it's just something that is, has always been around and it's, it's like gravity or the Earth's magnetic field. It's something that you can't really do anything about it. It's natural. Uh, it's, it's natural. It's scientific. Yeah. It's scientific. Yeah. And, and then he talks about how there was some pushback to this. Deleuze, Foucault, some others, they had talked about the idea that someone was a schizophrenic was often a political category. It's meant to sort people into certain groups to, or to exclude them somehow, that it wasn't maybe like the natural category so much. And uh, he talks about how, in a way, like mental distress has been on the rise at the same time that capitalism has become more, neoliberal capitalism in particular has become more prevalent in the UK, the USA, Australia, and so on. And then it's sort of like how in neoliberal capitalism, mental illness is it's privatized in a way because instead of treating it as some kind of problem that society faces as a whole with millions of people afflicted in similar ways, it's just done on a case-by-case basis. It's what happened in your past? What did you do that somehow led to this? It takes that frame as, and then and the consequence of that too is also that the treatments are often, you know, they're, they're medications that are given on a person-by-person basis. And 
he has, he also talks about how there's some causation here. He, not just the correlation that he talked about with how mental illness had risen at the same time as neoliberal capitalism had risen, but he also talks about how maybe like ADHD, for example, is just what he calls a pathology of late capitalism. It's just the fact that you have been wired into this, what he calls hypermediated consumer culture. And you just basically can't pay attention to anything anymore because there's too much. You could literally divert your attention to an infinite stream of anything. And you know, is uh, yeah. I, I will say that is surprising to hear him say, because <laughs> that is something that I have heard many conservative boomers say. Yeah. So to, yeah. to have that kind of... From the, the complete it, other end of the, of yeah. the spectrum. Yeah. It, it was interesting. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's... I wonder everybody has ADHD nowadays. So look at these kids and their screens. Their kids and their screens, yeah. You can hear it that turned into some kind of other, yeah, definitely into some kind of yeah, conservative argument. And the other thing, so then he also, the other mental condition that he frames in this sort of you know, capitalist causality is that bipolarism because capitalism is very boom and bust. So it's with the irrational mania of the bubble and then the, the economic depression, which is the word depression there is the same word that you would use to describe a mental illness. And then he does get into, I think that it's on my page 37, it's part of the chapter called Don't Let Yourself Get Attached. Yeah, that's probably the part that's really the most memorable about the mental illness is that, you know, the actually what you mentioned about the conservative boomer, I think someone on Twitter has said that too, that some conservative had said, had some kind of argument where all something like all mental illnesses were made up or something very caustic like that, but then something like actually not too different from capitalist realism, but he is a little, he is a little more sophisticated about it. So as he says on this page, that there's really the ruling ontology denies any possibility of a social causation of mental illness. And he says by making mental illness, this sort of chemical biological thing, it's very, it's you depoliticize it. So you make it this neutral scientific force. In a way, and then yeah, he says that by framing it this way as a chemical biological problem, that's very beneficial for capitalists because then they can sell you like a chemical biological solution. Well, they can sell you the fact that they didn't do it. They didn't right. do it. Yeah, this is just something that couldn't be avoided. It is completely so divorced from the idea that you're in this capitalist society. Yeah, but in reality, or what Fisher is saying is that there is a causality effect here yeah exactly because like when you take medication for mental illness it's i guess one of the assumptions there is that somehow it couldn't have been avoided and it wasn't your fault and it was just i guess it, whether it's your fault can i can go either way here because on the one hand it's, it's incumbent upon you to solve this problem right uh, but then on the other hand it's, it's also a natural thing instead of something that is the product of like a specific political environment i think people have spent a lot of time kind of pointing the discourse in the direction that it's fine to have these issues and to seek help for them. But I, I think that's a lot of that's a lot of it. But I think what Fisher is saying is that we are hiding like the cause of these issues or a cause, maybe not the cause, but yeah. an underlying social reason, I guess, for yeah. I think, he, yeah, I think that's right because he does say that, that maybe mental ill, he says it goes without saying that all mental illnesses are neurologically instantiated, but this says nothing about their causation. Yes. I've been uh, looking yeah. for that quote for the last yeah. five minutes. Yeah, but that's exactly it. <laughs> yeah. Now. It says, if it is true, for instance, that depression is constituted by low serotonin levels, 
what well, still needs to be explained is why particular individuals have low levels of serotonin. So, yeah, I mean, it's, I think he's not ruling out the idea that you can make yourself feel better, of course, with, with, with medication or with therapy or some treatment, but we lost the picture here of why somebody would have a low serotonin to begin. So like, why would they, and a lot of times I think it does get framed in this sort of context of it's totally particular to that individual. It's just something like maybe they had a bad situation going up or something or something in their family and there's never any attention paid to maybe the fact that everybody is in, doesn't have great opportunities for advancement or their job prospects are very dim. Mm -hmm. In general, that never really comes into the picture. Yeah, it's... Uh... So I think I'm looking at this page and I just realized it's the last page of the book. He sums it up pretty, pretty succinctly here. He says, we must convert widespread mental health problems from medicalized conditions into effective antagonisms, affective disorders like depression, anxiety, etc. Affective disorders are forms of captured discontent. This disaffection can and must be channeled outwards, directed towards its real cause, Catholic. He's very clearly calling for action in that. Yeah, uh, I think that the, that's pretty good because I think the way that a lot of the way that we're, we think about depression is often that it's like when you're depressed, you have your anger is directed inward. It's like you're angry that you've ended up in this situation. A lot of times you blame yourself for it. Yeah. And, and so it's if you were to channel that anger outward, though, it could look a lot different, but then of course it had to be a, like a mass movement because otherwise people would think you were, they would think there was something wrong with you, that you were just lashing out at everybody because you were incredibly depressed inside. And then, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, he says in any case, he says that he's talking about how the issue is whether it will be collectively managed or whether it will be imposed by authoritarian means when it's already too late. Talking about like collective management. So actually the context here is that he says that the proliferate, and this is actually goes right back to the quote you were doing. He says the proliferation of certain kinds of mental illness and late capitalism makes the case for a new austerity. A case that is also made by the increasing urgency of dealing with environmental disaster. Nothing contradicts capitalism's constitutive imperative toward growth more than the concept of rationing goods and resources. So it's sort of like, of course, environmental rationing would be one thing. You, know, you ration like access to water or access to oil or something. And then it's with mental illness. Here, I wasn't exactly sure what he was saying because I think it can be read multiple ways. You could say that if the making the case for a new austerity because of the proliferation of certain kinds of mental illness. I guess it would be something like, is he saying we should have we should reduce the our tendency to to say everything is a mental illness because that sort of gives us a way to take it outside of the realm of politics. Like that person is just mentally ill. It's like we. We can't really, yeah, that's a scientific, that's a medical problem. We can't do anything with that. Or if he's saying that like we, we somehow have to ration capitalism itself so that people get fewer mental illnesses. So I guess it could be read either one of those ways. And I'm not sure which one he intended, but yeah, he is right about the rationing because it was, to me, it was shocking how strongly people responded to the COVID lockdown measures. Oh gosh. Basically a type of rationing and people just went berserk and like it was because he's right. I mean, something is rationed. It's like what you're saying is the, there isn't the, there is an end here there. We only have so much. You can't just go on forever. And it's I actually just thought about that too. It's a contradiction. Capitalism is one hand. There's no future because everything's already been 
settled and there's no other alternative. But on the other hand, growth is infinite. So it's like you're growing infinitely, but then there's no real prospect of something changing. You're, you're growing infinitely into a predetermined Yeah, off. it's sort of like you're getting your wheel. Like, yeah, uh, it, like you... you or you're going in a figure eight, like on a highway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I don't know. It just feels like you, there's only so much growth to be had. And yeah, I, you're living on a, a planet with finite resources, so... Well, yeah, and I, the whole time I was reading this book, I thought, because he died in 2015, correct? 2017. 2017. Yeah. I just, I, the whole time I was reading it, I was just thinking, like, he is saying exactly the things that we have been hearing over the past couple of years in regards to COVID death and rationing of resources and rationing of time yeah. time spent outside the home things like that i don't know it, i just kept thinking like what would he be saying right now yeah um, i think a lot of it is still it is quite relevant hugely yeah it's 2017 is yeah i mean he, he barely missed the COVID era and there's a lot here that's also has played out even like you said has played out really accurately i think the thing where he talks about how something about how the culture is infantilized like people yes. can't people can't be really trusted to take on any sort of difficult art and that instead of having all these different you know, resources at their hands like he talks about myspace and facebook which of course i guess that that dates a little bit because myspace i guess was still somewhat of a thing back then and he talks about how there isn't this bottom-up culture of breathtaking diversity but there's an increasingly infantilized one where audiences can't cope with cultural products that are complex and intellectually demanding and then uh and he, this actually was one that i covered in my blog about how capitalist systems fail because people don't know what they want really yeah you, know, you keep saying this worked in the past so they definitely want this again but then a lot of times what they really want you might have something that was just an unexpected hit and or something that was very different and if you just keep recycling things you would never get there. Yeah, I think you see that with things like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Or I was just thinking if someone at Nintendo in 1983 had been like, well, let's just keep recycling Pong or something. Or let's <laughs> just keep, let's keep, let's do more Donkey Kong, like the arcade Donkey Kong game instead of doing Super Mario Brothers, which was totally different. And so it's, and then the fact that people never want to move on from those old hits means that like what we were saying earlier that like, the old music or the old classics, they always, they become even more valuable and durable because nothing can unseat them. And, and, and then, nostalgia is a really strong, yeah. a strong force. Oh, yeah. We were talking about Tactics Ogre the other day, right? Oh yeah, Tactics Ogre. I, somebody that I know said that he's purchased that game at least five or six times on different platforms because they keep oh, making it. Yeah, the original, yeah, yeah that's actually, uh, the original Tactics Ogre, I believe it came out, let's see. Yeah, it came out in 1995 and it was built for the Super Famicom, known as the Super Nintendo elsewhere, but it never was released outside of Japan. And then it did... It was ported to the Sega Saturn, only in Japan, uh, and the PS1, I think it got a release in both Japan and the US. And then I believe it was then remade for, it was remade for the PSP under a different, I think it had a different title, Let Us Cling Together, yeah. Tactics Ogre Let Us Cling Together. The original didn't have a subtitle. And then 
there's another remaster that is coming out actually in 10 days. It just keeps happening. Yeah. So it's another well, one of those. Yeah. Square Enix in particular is just, they're really a capitalist realist uh, oh, yeah. company. Dragon Quest three is my go-to example, but yeah, you can probably think of a lot more than two. <laughs> my best friend likes to joke that she has bought Final Fantasy X like every five years or something <laughs> since it came out. Yeah. Because it's just, it just keeps happening. And I did too, right? Like they yeah. re-released it for the Switch. So yeah, maybe that should not be the tagline for this episode of yeah. Square Enix. The Square Enix. Post-capitalist, yeah. or the post-capitalist. <laughs> capitalist realist. Yeah, yeah the capitalist realist company. Of the yeah. they. Uh, it's funny because, yeah, tact- I think the other Ogre Battle games have not really, I mean, like the original one, The March of the Black Queen, came out for came out for Super Nintendo and it was remade for the Sega Saturn and the PlayStation shortly thereafter. But then really it hasn't been, I guess it got the token virtual console re-release. But then like The Night of Lotus, that's the Game Boy Advance sequel, been off. It's never been re-released on any platform. So it's only exists in the 2001 physical edition for Game Boy Advance. I'm definitely going to get the Switch version. Yeah, I think I might have to too. And then the, I think Ogre Ogre Battle was an Enix property and then Square merged with Enix at some point. I don't know when that happened, but they both, I mean, like Enix had Ogre Battle, Dragon Quest was of course their big claim to fame Mm -hmm. in Japan. The Act Razor series, which recently, the first Act Razor game got a remake as well for Switch. Act Razor Renaissance, it's pretty good. It's pretty good if you've never played Act Razor. This is a game that I own in three different editions. I have the Switch remake. I have an original Super Famicom cartridge of it. And then I have a virtual console copy of the North American Super Nintendo version. <laughs> so nice. I have it in basically all three versions it exists in. Because there were some heavy content edits to the, the original because the villain was originally called Satan. And the main character is named God. But then in the North American version... Can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the main character is called The Master and the villain is called Tanzra. Oh. Um, and they, Ew, that, that's yeah, boring i know yeah and then they <laughs> kept those names in the remake though but yeah in the original god and someone the first time i found out about this the article that was describing it says in the japanese version and your character is named god and then it's in, and they put a parenthetical exclamation point and you're fighting against satan then two exclamation points <laughs> <in them. laughs> so, very nice but uh, yeah like that's a pretty good touch yeah and then uh, so i think yeah. this is a good um, yeah that's segue. a good yeah. It's a good it's a good place to stop, but for me it's also a good segue into how depressing reading this book was just because it made me rethink my my <laughs> relationship with anti-capitalism because essentially he's saying that anti-capitalism is just bu- buying into the capitalism because they're not there's no real end goal of it. Yeah. Because Kurt Cobain could bang his drum or whatever and say that MTV is bad, but they're still playing that music on MTV. Yeah. But so anyway, this discussion yeah. of the different versions of video games that we've purchased, I <laughs> yeah. would like to consider myself an anti-capitalist, but I do, I it's, I participate. It's funny because that's actually the one slide that I didn't get to, but there, he does have something in there about ironic distance. And I think it's on my page 13. I don't know what that is for you, but it's where he leans on. It's at the very beginning of chapter two. He really leans on Zizek and he says that capitalist ideology consists precisely in the overvaluing of belief in the sense of inner subjective attitude. 
at the expense of the beliefs we exhibit and externalize in our behavior. Mm-hmm. So as long as we believe in our hearts that capitalism is bad, we are free to continue to participate in capitalist exchange. And then according to Zizek, capitalism in general relies on this structure of disavowal. We believe that money is only a meaningless token of no intrinsic worth, yet we act as if it has a holy value. Moreover, this behavior precisely depends upon the prior disavowal. We are able to fetishize money in our actions only because we have already taken an ironic distance towards money in our heads. <laughs> right. That's where yeah. I'm at. That's me. Yeah. And yeah. I'm going to buy Tactics Ogre and yeah, exactly. you know, 15 different. Yeah, I know. It's really right about that because, yeah, I think of myself too. Is the capitalism is not really very great. But at the same time, I, it, in a way, it's sort of like you can't escape because I think there's a famous there's a famous cartoon by a cartoonist named Matt Bors. So it's two guys. One of them is like a peasant with a bunch of sticks on his back. And the other one is like a guy looking out of a, he's climbed up out of a well. He's like smiling. Looking at him. And the peasant says, we should improve society somewhat. And the other guy says, yet you participate in society. Curious. <laughs> I am very intelligent. <laughs> so it's like whenever somebody says something like, well, maybe capitalism could be real. Maybe it's not the best system in the world. It's when yet you are typing this from an iPhone or something like that, you can't escape. You still have to give some critique. But I think I had, I had put this as a note, in my note on this passage I put, we laugh at the concept of content, but then we feel like it's okay to put ourselves to the SEO ringer and try to get engagement. (laughs) Yeah. We laugh at content. This is literally this podcast. We laugh at content, but we are actively creating content. Yeah, Yeah, we're actively creating content (laughs) and hoping it gets, it goes the normal route of getting clicks and so on. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Oh man. So on that depressing note. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, that uh, yeah. I'd forgotten about cartoon. I see that it used to come up a lot. Yeah. Curious. We should improve society somewhat. Yet you participate <laughs> in society. Curious. Oh, man. Yeah. But that's, yeah. It is, of course, it is, I guess, a depressing book because, when, in, in part, because the author himself committed suicide. But then, I don't know. I guess the, the book does end on a somewhat positive paragraph. At least he talks about how. It's you know, a call it, to action. Like, yeah, the, that last paragraph. Yeah. Even glimmers of alternative political and economic possibilities can have a disproportionately great effect. And then the tiniest event can tear a hole in the gray curtain of reaction, which has marked the horizons of possibility under capitalist realism. So, like, you think about the, I don't know, the CARES Act and COVID, like, yeah, that was really. Like the unemployment piece of that was like a huge, mm. a huge coup for a lot of people. And then, of course, a lot of people wanted to forget about that as quickly as possible because it did expose the fact that the fact that we give unemployed people nothing, basically, this is not some kind of natural fact. It's just a choice we've made and we could easily undo it. Not easily, but we could undo it if we wanted to. But yeah. So yeah, I, uh, yeah. I enjoyed the read and I enjoyed doing a kind of a less, less fluffy episode oh, yeah. this time. <laughs> Yeah, so maybe we'll get back to the fluffy next week. But maybe we can get back to the fluffy. Yeah, but it, it is fun to step away from that and for a while and not have to kind of critically about the systems that we participate in and about how perhaps to participate more effectively for right. our yeah. Own psyche. Yeah, yeah, it helps a lot because yeah, being able to think about these things in different ways. Like I said, it can be liberating because you can realize that you didn't have to think about it the way you'd always thought about it. This is inevitable or this is, I can't do anything about this, but it does leave you with that feeling of, you do feel depressed in a way after reading it. On the other hand, you just see things in a different way. Yeah, um, yeah. It's really interesting. I'm I'm working on a blog post about his thoughts about mental health. So yeah, look I, for I, that, I guess. I do have, okay, yeah, I will. And then I have a draft somewhere that's not about 
this directly, but I think it's about, yeah, I think it has the title right now, content betrays our trust. And it's about the, it is about, part of it is about the chess cheating scandal, uh, which is a recent thing. So I have some bits and pieces of it written so far, but it's, it might be a shorter post. I often say that and then something ends up being 4,000 words (laughs) long, but um, I will see. So hopefully I'll. Yeah, so maybe we can come back and talk about those things at a later. Next time, yeah, for sure. I think that is a good place to put a pin in it. Okay. Uh, wow, I'm... almost two hours. <laughs> yeah, we're doing great. <laughs> I'm Liz. You can find me at LizMakeStuff.com. And I'm Alex. You can find my main content here at TwoSolid.substack.com. So that's T-O-O Solid.substack.com. And that automatically gets linked in all of the show posts on, of course, if you're on the website and you're on the website already, but even in like Apple podcasts uh, where the show is available, if you read the show notes, there's always a link to the Substack automatically generated there. So yeah. And if you made it this far into our two hour podcast, <laughs> let us know if you would like to hear us talk more about critical theory, because I enjoyed doing it and i enjoyed reading it maybe there's more of this in our future or if you'd just like us to dunk on content mills forever that's okay too there david duchovny yeah yeah (laughs) yeah the sequel episode (laughs) i had someone ask me like how do you know that david duchovny is not gonna sue you and i said you know what if he needs that (laughs) yeah someone was making fun of how elon musk was having some exchange with stephen king on oh my god and they were saying Imagine being the world's richest man and trying to shake down Stephen King for eight dollars. <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, that's pretty much where Eli is right now." Oh, <laughs> that is a good button. Yeah. To- okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Agreed. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Bye.